0: Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today, we discuss the life and presidency of Calvin Coolidge. I do love his election slogan, Keep Cool with Coolidge, but that was for re-election. As you heard in our previous podcast, Warren Harding's death was what thrust Coolidge into the presidency, our nation's 30th. Some fun facts about Calvin Coolidge. He was born on the 4th of July, the only U.S. president to have been so. He had the nickname Red for his red hair. His real first name was John, which he dropped in college. And he signed the Indian Citizen Act, which gave full U.S. citizen rights to all Native Americans. Now, before I turn it over to Gene, two things. One, please follow us or subscribe to wherever you are listening to this podcast. It is free. And tell a friend about Jimmy and Gene. We'd love to grow our audience. Second, we have another guest this time, Julie Bartlett Nelson from the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Museum and Library. And now here is our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away.
1: Calvin Coolidge, or how he is sometimes referred to as Silent Cal, was the vice president of Warren G. Harding, and he becomes president after the death of his predecessor. He is elected president in his own right in 1924. Calvin Coolidge spends seven years as the nation's president. He was born on July 4th, 1872 in Vermont. He is the only president so far to be born on July 4th. Many have died on Independence Day, but he's the only one born on that day. His full name was John Calvin Coolidge, but he was always known as Calvin. He was well-educated. He attended Amherst College. He was not one for small talk. He wasn't very good uh, at, um, you know, one-on-one conversations, but he was great with a crowd and he was very good when making a speech, both qualities that will help you if you're the president of the United States. He studied law as an apprentice and became a lawyer. He went on to practice law in Massachusetts and he became well-known and respected by the local businesses that he would represent. Coolidge was a prominent member of the community, and he was involved in local politics in the Republican Party in Massachusetts. Today, we are joined by Julie Bartlett Nelson, who is an archivist at the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Museum and Library in Massachusetts. All right. So I guess we'll just get right into it. Julie, thank you so much for uh, joining us today.
2: Yes. Thank you for having me.
1: So Calvin Coolidge is, you know, one of those presidents who becomes president due to the death of his predecessor. For Calvin Coolidge, what was his early life like?
2: Yes, yeah, so Calvin Coolidge grows up on a farm in Plymouth Notch, Vermont, which is a tiny rural area of about um, 300 people at the time. He attends a one-room schoolhouse in his village and has his father has a general family farm, mostly dairy farm, and also ran a cheese factory and owned a general store. Mm -hmm. And then his father was a notary and the county tax collector and had served in the state legislature. So he's kind of surrounded by community of large extended family as well in the area.
1: For Calvin Coolidge, more so than any other president before him and really after him, he holds more elected office. What is his kind of road to the White House like?
2: Yes. So he gets involved in local politics here in Northampton, Massachusetts as on his city Republican committee, um, working for his ward within the city. He's the clerk of the courts for the county court system. He's elected state representative, um, mayor of Northampton, state senator, and he became the president of the state senate as well um, by his colleagues and is lieutenant governor and governor before becoming vice president and president.
1: For Calvin Coolidge, you know, many kind of point to that Boston police strike and it's that you know particular event that kind of earns him national attention. Do you think that that is the event that gets him on the ticket with Warren Harding?
2: The Boston police strike is definitely the event that earned him national reputation and national attention within the National Republican Party. Before that, as a state governor, he was known in circles with like governor's conference and among other state leaders, but not quite at the national level where we see other presidents who were governors, um, but we see many presidents who were United States senators or US representatives. And he hadn't really played in that national federal service level until he got the attention with the police strike.
1: For people who don't know it, police officers in Boston were hoping to unionize And, you know, Coolidge crushed the strike and it made him, you know, a household name and it gave him national notoriety. But for Coolidge, you know, when he becomes vice president, is it true that he was the first vice president to to be invited to cabinet meetings and to attend those meetings?
2: Yes. So he early on as vice president, he's presiding as president of the Senate. And so he is invited by Harding into cabinet meetings. And then he's also presiding over the Senate. So he's on the Senate floor on a regular basis. We don't have that from him as president. Um, So you will see him as vice president, often quoted in congressional record and presiding over
1: hearings. For Calvin Coolidge, you know, when he does become president, you know, Warren Harding dies in office. He dies of health complications, basically a heart attack. But for Harding, his legacy is very much tainted by a variety of scandals within his administration. Why didn't they impact Coolidge in the same way?
2: Yeah, so Coolidge is really removed from the story of the Teapot Dome scandal. And the vice president and the president purposely are not put together for security reasons often. Their offices are not located anywhere near each other, and their living quarters are very far apart. So the daily interaction between the vice president and the president is very minimal. Um, They rarely attend the same events together. And if they do, they're far apart. And so Harding and Coolidge's working relationship, they weren't interacting that close on a daily basis. You know, in that sense, there's a lot of historians who speculate, you know, how much did Harding himself know about teapot dome how much did coolidge know and we really don't know where that falls but coolidge pretty far removed from that scandal um he's left in the legacy and the wake of harding's death to clean it up to force cabinet members out and to resign and then replace new cabinet members as well
1: and you know it's important that you mention the distance because when harding dies he's of course coming back from a trip He, he dies in california But for Coolidge, he was back home. He was at his, you know, the house he grew up in and his father, when he gets the news that the president has died and he is now the president of the United States, it's his father who's, you know, gives him the oath of office.
2: Yes. So he was on a planned vacation to his father's house. He's on the farm in Vermont um, with his wife, Grace, and It is um, telegrams that are being sent to the local station in Ludlow, Vermont. The telegraph uh, word was coming on a frequent basis that Harding was ill. He was not well. They were kind of keeping him informed of what was going on. But ultimately, it is a reporter who delivers a telegram in the middle of the night, knocks on the door of the house. There's no telephones in the village of Plymouth Notch. His father didn't have plumbing and electricity. And it's very rural uh, rustic area. And this telegram arrives saying that Harding has died and he is now the president and his father wakes him up. They dress They're in the living room of the home by candlelight with the family Bible. And his father administered him the oath of office as a local notary, as a state official, there is some speculation whether that was legal or not. When questioned later, his father uh, is asked, well, how did you know you could do that? And he says, well, no one told me I couldn't. <laughs> and so it's sort of the importance of the oath was known, but not really who administers it. And there is later revealed many years later, there was a secret uh, private ceremony with a federal judge in Washington, D.C. Um, a couple weeks later, as people were like, was that legal? Um, do we need to do something again? And so there was something performed later, but it wasn't a public ceremony.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's always so interesting when the vice president has to assume the role of the president. I mean, for example, John Tyler, I mean, I think when he became president, I mean, people refer to him as his accidency, you know, Hey, are you really meant you know, to get this job? But when Coolidge and it's his time to do that, there is no question of it. I mean, he just, he's the president, he assumes the roles and the power of the president. And he serves seven years as president. He finishes out Harding's term. He wins reelection in his own right, but he doesn't run for a second term. You know, there was no constitutional amendment at that point limiting somebody like there is today. And his supporters had hoped that he would run again, but he doesn't. So he served seven years. And I do want to talk about you know his domestic agenda and his foreign policy. But when he does run for president in his own right in 1924. What was that campaign like? I know the slogan was keep cool with Coolidge, but how did he go about campaigning in his own right?
2: Yeah. So for the campaign, he is nominated at the convention and then notified of his nomination. Um, So at that point, they're not at the conventions. They're not giving speeches for themselves. And his son dies shortly after the convention. So his campaign plans really shift and change in his period of mourning. Um, He's not out on the campaign trail as planned. His father ends up doing a lot of campaigning with a group that left Vermont and traveled by caravan on the Lincoln Highway. And so they go from the Northeast to the Midwest doing a lot of campaign stops. Coolidge does do a lot of what kind of the whistle stop back of the train stops in his traveling where uh, they pull into the town, they'd have a break and a stop. He might give a speech or he might just wave to a crowd, but he did very little of the sort of person-to-person door-to-door type campaign style that he had done at the state level in early offices. Charles Dawes, who's nominated as the vice president, is out on the campaign trail during the summer of 24. And he's throughout most of the Midwest, but Coolidge really takes kind of a backseat to the campaign trail after the death of his son.
1: Yeah. I mean, I do, do want to talk about, I mean, it's, it's a, devastating story you think of there are terms for you know there's a widower and a widow but there is no term for somebody who has lost a child it's an unimaginable loss I'm a parent I I don't want to know a world where that happens and for the Coolidge's you know their son was playing tennis and he you know I guess in, in a rush to leave didn't put on socks he got a blister the blister became infected and he ended up dying of, I think it's sepsis, right? He dies of like, a, like yeah, a blood poisoning. Blood poisoning. And I mean, if you think about it, here is the president of the United States. He has access to the best doctors. I'm sure his son would have had access to the best doctors of the time. And if you think about it, I mean, something today that we consider simple as an antibiotic, as penicillin didn't exist. And I mean, had it existed, he would have survived that. But you, you have to understand that all of these advancements that we take for granted today they just they weren't there they didn't exist yet nobody had invented it yet for the Coolidges, you know when we spoke earlier what i thought was so interesting is you know people think of the 1920s as this age of uh you know newness and you know society was changing but and and grace coolidge was kind of a, a bit of a fashion icon to a certain extent but they did keep those victorian era mourning rituals you know if you, if you want to talk a little bit about that
2: yeah, so after the death of their son, and he's an active, healthy, fit 16-year-old, so it's quite a shock to themselves as well as the nation. You know, how did this happen? And in Coolidge's 1929 autobiography, he doesn't say too much, but the most sort of powerful um, sentence is, the glory of the presidency died that day. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of historians really point to that of, You had a president who was a quiet, shy introvert already was his sort of personality. And then how that grief and trauma really affected him and changed him and his political life and his presidency going forward. Uh, Did he lose interest at that point? He's an accidental president already through the death of Harding. And so where's the impact there? And we do see them keep up with morning rituals of he wore a black armband on his suit on a daily basis for the month following um, his son's death. He doesn't go out on the campaign trail. And you also see Grace with their older son, John, really keeping him close by. John had attended like an army training camp every summer, you know, kind of what we Know now as like a junior ROTC program, and she wouldn't allow him to go back. And she kept him close by for the summer. And she doesn't allow him to join the military in general. He goes to college. And so kind of looking at her, keeping her remaining child really close to her. Um, And in the spotlight, you know, how do you grieve in the spotlight like that? You know, something really difficult, And we've seen a few other presidents prior do that as well. Grace is a little more outgoing than Calvin. You know, Calvin's really remains kind of stoic and quiet at that point. But we do see Grace later writing and publishing some poetry. She has a beautiful poem she wrote about Calvin Jr. on the fifth anniversary of his death that she published in a magazine. And so kind of looking at how she reflected inward and with friends In the 20s, you had kind of after World War I, you know, you'd seen so many mothers lose sons in the war. And so you also have this sort of collective trauma in general after the war. So you had a lot of women, a lot of mothers really reaching out to her and understanding her. But you had less so with the father, with the president of, you know, what was his role in a grieving process there. In yeah. a difficult time,
1: you know, for the first family, and, and you mentioned Grace Coolidge, you know, she was a teacher for the deaf, where Calvin Coolidge was often seen as cold. She was more known for her warm and inviting personality. What was the relationship? What was the dynamic between the two?
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people see them as opposites and opposites attract, you know, he was an introvert, she was an extrovert. And, you know, how did that mesh together? Um, you know, her more traditional role as housewife and mother, and she had been a teacher for the deaf prior to that. She does a lot of volunteer work with the Clark School in her later years and in retirement and is quite involved there and involved in education efforts Um and disabled veterans of World War I, um, visiting sick children in hospitals throughout Washington and some other activities that she takes up as first lady and with cabinet wives. And we kind of see that role with her. Her hostess role in the White House, she also is charged with in post-World War I of opening up the White House and the grounds to the public again. So it had grounds have been restricted during the war. She brings back the Easter egg roll. And so she's hosting, you know, children and families on the White House lawn. She's bringing music and concerts back inside the White House that are open. She starts the first national Christmas tree. And so we have this tree lighting ceremony on the grounds as well. And so really bringing families and tourism back to Washington and particularly to the White House grounds. And um, so that's kind of as each first lady kind of shapes their own hostess role or we think of now as what platforms or agendas, um, but her role there of just bringing people back to the city.
1: For Calvin Coolidge, his domestic agenda, there's this fo- there's this uh, focus on economics, you know, lowering taxes, reduce regulation of business. he wanted to balance, the budget. And there is this concept of there being this Coolidge prosperity. And of course, that prosperity wouldn't last very long. But you know, wages did increase, there was a bull market, you do see a decrease in unemployment, um, and inflation, taxes were lowered, but the 20s weren't roaring for everyone, you know, farmers in particular, were hurting, they were hurting for quite some time by the time the stock market crashes in 29. And you know, and people are saying, well, what happened? And farmers are kind of like, welcome to the party. This is what we've been yeah, okay. dealing with. We talked, you know, a few days ago, and and you mentioned how Coolidge had his, you know, sort of personal beliefs in regards to economics and using credit. And then, you know, you have his domestic agenda and his economic policies along with his Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon. But did Coolidge's, I guess, economic stance did it pave the way for the great depression?
2: Yeah. So, you know, we see a lot of researchers come to the Coolidge library, looking for answers to that. We see a lot of economic theory of, you know, how much was he to blame in the great depression? Um, I've seen it anywhere from 25% to 75%. You know, where does Coolidge policies, Harding, Wilson, the war, foreign policy, global economy, you know, how do all these things interplay? And we do see with Coolidge, he has real attitudes about debt and money from his early childhood. He doesn't own a home. He doesn't want a mortgage. He doesn't buy on credit like most Americans were doing at that time. So he's not personally participating into that. So I don't think he realized how widespread and how much in debt a typical American consumer may have been in at that point. And we have his focus on debt is to pay off the war debt. Americans are buying Liberty bonds to finance the war. He pays back the bonds. He balances a budget with a surplus each year. And he's really working towards um, getting rid of that. Inflation at the end of the war is 20%. By 1929, we're at 0%. And so, you know, really working on that. And at the same time, we see his critics in later decades saying, Well, that's all great, but we also had to grow the economy at the same time. And so, where do you balance um, debt and growth together? And Mm -hmm. how does that play in? With foreign policy, we see kind of a world of isolationism after the war as well. And so, trying to work at um, Calgary Impact or the Dawes Plan with reparations with Europe, we see great ideas but nothing to completion and so kind of how how does that end in the 20s with the war Um, but we do see farmers during world war one had been buying new equipment new machinery had really ramped up production and when the war ended and we don't have demand for products we see people overextended in credit and debt And then they have goods they can't sell. And so farmers starting in 1919 are starting down a real economic hardship that continues into World War II. And so for two decades, um, before we even see people in more prosperous cities um, falling into financial decline with the Great Depression.
1: Yeah. What would you say are his biggest accomplishments as president?
2: Yeah. So for a president, I think he really looks at, uh, debt reduction as a big thing for taxes. He reduces taxes back down to the pre-war levels. So they had risen significantly during the war and he lowers them to the pre-war levels and then even further below. Um, so he would view economic recovery as kind of his big accomplishment. He also was quite proud of the 1924 Indian Citizenship Act. So people living on reservations were now citizens. And he'd really backed off of his predecessors plans to do away with reservations. Um, He had a lot more ideas and plans that didn't get accomplished. So voting rights um, were not tied to citizenship at that point Mm -hmm. as well. So that was also something he'd worked on and not accomplished. Um, We do see federal money going to infrastructure So starts of highways, the FCC, radio, new technologies, air mail and aviation. Um, So you see this trend of the creation of more federal infrastructure happening, which is really bizarre for a guy who is really into states rights and small (laughs) federal government. So kind of when you do see his spending change a little bit and his attitudes about spending, do change as technology is evolving there, which I think was pretty significant for him. Um, He really pushes each year as well, an anti-lynching bill, which never passes. Um, But we do see that brought forth in his annual message to Congress each year and really pushed um, from his party as well. But ultimately that is not something passed, but it brings much discussion uh, to light at that point.
1: What areas do you think he failed to see the impact of his policies?
2: Um, You know, we are left with the legacy of the Johnson Reed Act, which is 1924 Immigration Act. And for Coolidge, um, I think that's probably his most complicated legacy that he did ultimately sign that piece, which became the most restrictive immigration bill we've seen. For him, part of it was economics, Part of it was isolationism and discrimination after the war, restricting with quotas who could come to the United States and who couldn't and how many. You know, we had some questions about did we have enough economy and jobs and housing to support unlimited numbers of people? There was a lot of debate then about that as well. Um, And we see that reiterated in future generations. But for him, he didn't see that. He saw that as more of this is what needs to happen now. And I don't think we could ever predict that that would not get changed and repealed until the 1950s. Yeah, that that would become many decades of legislation and the impact of that. You know, we see Coolidge leaves office March of 29 and he dies January of 33. So we don't have much time with him post-presidency where I'd love if he had lived longer to reflect back on that, like 20 years later and get some comments there. And unfortunately that's just something we don't have, you know, what, yeah. what did he think the impact of that was? And as we try to teach that today, the complications of that, of hundred years later, what did that mean?
1: Now, I do want to just discuss a few more things that occur during his presidency. In addition to what you mentioned, Julie, I also want to talk about the Indian Citizen Act of 1924, and it stated the following, and this is a direct quote, that all non-citizen Indians born within the territorial limits of the United States be, and they are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States, provided that the granting of such citizenship shall not in any manner impair or otherwise affect the right of any Indian to tribal or other property. Now this was very important because prior to this act, the only avenues for citizenship for native Americans in the United States prior to this law was through the naturalization process, marriage, or through entering the armed forces. So this gave citizenship to Native Americans in the United States. In addition to that, another major event that occurs during his presidency and affects the next president is the Mississippi River flood of 1927, and it was considered the worst natural disaster in the United States until 2005 when Hurricane Katrina replaced it. Residents in states along the Mississippi River in Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana were displaced by the hundreds of thousands and really were hit the hardest. The majority of the people impacted and displaced were black Americans, many of whom moved to Northern states as part of what became known as the great migration, which we will talk about more in the next few episodes. There were some areas that the floodwaters were 30 feet deep other states like Kentucky, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Illinois, Missouri, they were also affected. 500 people were killed due to the flooding and it's estimated that the damage cost close to 1 billion dollars. In today's money it would be close to about a trillion dollars in damage. This was a massive event. For residents who didn't migrate north, there were these refugee camps that were created and they become known as tent cities. Herbert Hoover, who was the secretary of commerce at the time of the flood, he gains national notoriety for his handling of the natural disaster. And it helps him to win the presidential election of 1928. It was Hoover who convinced Coolidge that a federal response to this natural disaster was essential. It was necessary States were given aid to fix infrastructure and to provide basic necessities for their citizens. White residents were more likely to receive aid than black residents and black refugees. Hoover's broken promises of fixing inequalities for black Americans is part of the reason he lost re-election in 1932. But when we get to Herbert Hoover, we will talk more about that. For Coolidge, in terms of foreign policy, he he's walking really a fine line between isolationism and globalism. He left most of the work for foreign policy to his cabinet. In terms of our closest neighbors in Latin America, the U.S. policy was still very much that of supporting the interests of U.S. businesses who had significant investments in the region. And by significant investments, we're talking in the billions of dollars. The support of the U.S. business interests came with a hefty price tag, especially for Latin American countries themselves. So much so that we see many of these Latin American countries starting to band together to protect themselves from the United States. Another major law is the 1928 Kellogg Brand Pact. Uh, Kellogg was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize for this. There are 14 countries who sign it, and it helps to set the framework for international relations with the United States and other countries for
0: years to come. And now we go back to our interview between Jean-Anne and her guest, Julie Bartlett Nelson.
1: For, for Coolidge, his post-presidency isn't very long. Like a lot of former presidents before him, he supports himself through writing whether it's his autobiography or, or um, you know, articles that he wrote for McClure's magazine. But when he dies, how did the country respond to his death? I mean, we're in the throes of the Great Depression. What is the reaction to Coolidge's death?
2: Yeah, so when the when Coolidge's leave office, um, you know, they're well-loved, they're well-liked. He had good ratings. Um on leaving office and Grace Coolidge left as a beloved first lady. And so they were sort of courted by the press for interviews, for articles, um, to get involved with things, different organizations were courting them for endorsements or volunteers or being on like boards of directors for different groups and organizations. And they tried to keep a low profile and kind of a private life. Calvin Coolidge does maintain an office space in downtown Northampton. And with staff, and he goes there, but he's not actually practicing law much. We do see every once in a while his signature turned up as a notary on a document, maybe for a friend, but he's not actively taking in clients. He's writing a newspaper article almost daily in 1930, 1931. There was a syndicated column called Calvin Coolidge Says, and his autobiography comes out in fall of 29. And so that's kind of where he made most of his money in retirement and does leave, you know, quite a bit of wealth to Grace Coolidge on his passing through that. He quickly figured out post-presidency with no secret service. It was very difficult to travel. So they don't have secret service for life then. Um, So he's having to hire private security or, you know, vacation and travel was quite difficult as crowds surrounded them. So they do do some, some traveling They do go to Florida. They do go to California and make some big trips and are spending a lot of time with their son. The son, John, gets married in the fall of 29. And so they're spending uh, some time with him as well. And John has two children born after Calvin's death. So Grace, in her later years, is spending a lot of time with her son and granddaughters.
1: For Calvin Coolidge, what is his legacy? You know, how would people view him today in, in terms of today's political parties?
2: Yeah, I think when you look at Coolidge of how do you compare the 1920s and like the 2020s? How do you compare a Republican 100 years ago and a Republican today? And like, where did the party shift and sort of flip flop? How do we analyze them today? I mean, we see Coolidge in his time as real fiscal conservative, small government states rights, but on social issues, he'd be much more moderate leaning. Um, And so where do those kind of fit in on a map of what would we label him today is kind of the common question we get. And we're like, well, it depends. He's kind of, he'd be all over the place today. And we look at what was the reality of the 20s versus the myth of the roaring 20s. And, you know, what was it like for people? We still see a lot of economic disparity today that we see in full force in the 20s. And you had it roaring for people and you had extreme poverty for people. And kind of where did that fit in with the average person? And it was very different in a rural area, suburban area, urban area. And what was that life like as well? Um, and different occupations. So sort of post-World War I, you had a lot of different job opportunities come about. You had a lot of people moving into cities, less people working on farms and a lot more job opportunities for women and women in the workforce has really changed. Um, so kind of the legacy of looking back and trying to study what the time was like, um, looking at census data of you know where are people living? What were they doing for jobs and how are they interacting and moving? So you saw people moving away from families and into cities and places as well.
1: That's so great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I so appreciate it and enjoyed this discussion and I hope our listeners will too.
2: Great, thank you so much. And we look forward to uh, questions from researchers anytime and love to get stuff in teachers hands or um, appear in classrooms all over via Zoom as well. So
1: that's great. Well, thank you so much, Julie. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. When it comes to his legacy, you have the stock market crash, which really just tarnished his legacy. He does not have a long post-presidential life. He dies in 1933 from a heart attack. The country is still in the throes of the Great Depression and the American public who is suffering from unemployment. They look at Coolidge as well as the current president, Hoover, as being able to have done more and didn't. The Republican Party would lose the White House in the next election to FDR, who would become the longest-serving president in U.S. history. If you're looking for primary source material or to even schedule a Zoom conference, the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Museum and Library is a great resource, and they are always happy to get the necessary information into the hands of educators. Reach out to them if you're looking to do some research, and of course— Go visit the library itself if you're near Northampton, Massachusetts.
0: Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.